This morning, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Hebrews. You're going to hear that a lot. We are doing a study on Hebrews, and we are in chapter 3. And before I read chapter 3, or the first six verses of chapter 3, I should say, just a, a note, this is a, this is a new, sort of new beginning, a new section's beginning here for uh, this book and for the author. And, and what we're going to notice throughout chapter 3 and 4 is that the author is really, uh, at this point, digging in to encourage his listeners to hold fast to this hope, this confidence that they have in Jesus. So with that, let us give our, our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Hebrews chapter 3. And I'll read the first six verses for us. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than, than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were, that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we again pause. We, we, we aim to be still before you and ask for your mercy and grace this morning as we look at your word and your truth. Would you open our eyes and open our ears that we may see and hear things? Otherwise, we could not. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Got to get that dramatic pause in there. So as we start this third section, we're going to look at three things this morning, and they're not in your program, so if you're into taking notes, here are the three things that I want us to look at as we enter into this new section. Um, the, the first is the need for true confidence. The need for true confidence. The second is a silhouette of confidence that we'll see the author giving us. And then finally, the source of true confidence. Okay? So we'll look at the need for true confidence, a silhouette of confidence, and the source of true confidence. So let's look at that first one, the need of true confidence. What the author is trying to do at this point is to instill confidence to a despairing people. Um, some of you all know that I played basketball uh, through high school. It's my favorite sport. And I can remember uh, the weeks leading up to important games. And I can remember how our coach would, would, would sort of on that, that Monday's practice, if the game was on Friday, would, would sort of line us up on the baseline before he ran us to death. And he would go through all the things that we would focus on that week uh, all the things that we would remember, all the things that, would, that, that, that we would hold to, if you will, uh, our confession maybe, uh, that if we were to do these things come Friday, we would be fine. But what would happen Friday? We would forget everything, 
right? Friday would roll around, the game would start, and it was, it was as if we just forgot even how to play the game of basketball, and we would enter into halftime uh, often, and we'd be down 20 points, and what we needed more than anything was, was, was an encouragement, an encouraging word to give us the confidence to go forward in what it is that we were doing here. We would enter that locker room with zero confidence often, zero passion, and zero drive. Oftentimes, we just wanted to abandon everything. Well, this is what the author is doing in, in one sense in chapter 3. He sets out to encourage a despairing, despairing group of people who are having a hard time finding the confidence they need to hold fast to the hope that they once confessed. That are having a hard time finding the drive to continue in faith. In other words, he is encouraging faith in the face of difficulty by reminding them of their confession, what it was that they believed. And the way that you encourage faith in the face of difficulty, the, the, the place that you start is you go back to the basics. You go back to the basics, what this whole thing is about in the first place. Sometimes our coach would come in if it was a really bad halftime score. And, you know, he would just sort of look at us and he would say, you remember how to dribble, right? Y'all remember how to shoot? Okay. Now, the author of Hebrews obviously isn't this condescending, but the point is made. When we are discouraged, when you are discouraged, when we are despairing, when you are despairing, when confidence seems lost, we have to go back to the basics. And what are the basics? What are those things in the first place? It's simple. The basics are Jesus, is Jesus. That's what this is about. That's what, that's what all of this is about. It is about Jesus. And this is what the author writes. Consider him. Consider Jesus there. It's about coming in. Uh, it's, it's about God coming in the flesh to die for sinners like you and me. Something we hear often. And it's about holding fast to him. It's about making him our confession. And Confession is an important word here. We're going to hear more about that in the chapters to come. So I think it's important to maybe unpack that for just a second. What, what, what is a confession? What does he mean by this? A confession is a proclamation of what you believe in any circumstance. Let me say that again. It is a proclamation, and oftentimes a public proclamation, just like our confession of faith, of what you believe in any circumstance. It is how you and I navigate life. So you and I came in here this morning with a confession, whether you're a Christian or not, right? whether you believe in Jesus or not. All of us have walked in here with a confession, something that you and I believe, something that we profess to, that we live by. And see, the reality is, is that over the years, right, from high school to college to dating, marriage, babies, retirement, whatever it is, you've been fashioning that confession. You've been adding some things here cutting away things here. And this is what you are using to navigate life. And all of us can do this for a while. Heck, some of us can even do this for most of our lives, but for the majority of us in here, the brokenness of this world with all of its pain, with all of its suffering, with all of the, well, things just aren't supposed to turn out this way. Right, all that, 
It's going to show up on that one day, someday in our lives, if it hasn't already, and it is going to obliterate that confession that you have built your life on. And see, that's, that's where these people are. That's where these people are in chapter 3. And what they need, what we need, is an anchor, as we've been saying. We need a true confession where our confidence rests. See, when life shows up, you thought you had an anchor, which was and is your confession. And then a family member dies, right? A friend gets cancer. Someone loses their job. And what you had built your life around, your confession, crumbles under the circumstances. Christians despair and walk away. That's the scene. And why did they do this? Because what you thought was an anchor wasn't an anchor. What you thought was an anchor wasn't an anchor. And you might even say that this is sort of the big billboard for the author of Hebrews. What you thought was an airtight confession which you had been putting together your entire life, wasn't. And see, the author is suggesting to its reader that the only confession that is airtight, the only one able to hold up in life's storms, is Jesus. It's back to the basics. Could you consider him? It's how your sufferings and your joys and your living and your dying is all wrapped up and united to the person and work of Jesus. See, this is what we need this morning. We don't need 10 steps on how to live a better life. We need Jesus. And this is, this is the first point, the need for true confidence. So let's look at the second point, the silhouette of confidence. How does the author go about then encouraging this type of true confidence? And what he does is he shows us a hero. The author shows us a hero here, which, is, which comprises of most of this section. What do heroes do for us, by the way? Simple. Heroes instill confidence in us, right? If you're going to go out on the town tonight, maybe something's happening, something's not right, and you look to the sky and you see the bat sign show up, you're going to be okay, right? You're, confidence is going to be instilled. That's what heroes do for us. And we are introduced for the first time in the book of Hebrews to a true hero, at least for these people, and that's Moses. There is no better Christian. There is no better hero, no, no better hero of the faith than Moses himself. Who was he? And there are so many things to say about Moses, but we do need to kind of come back to a few. One, because this is what the audience would be thinking about, Moses was a representative, first and foremost, representative, a go-between for God and Israel. He stood between God and Israel as their advocate. We've been talking about advocates a lot. Think about a good lawyer, right, in a courtroom. What does that lawyer do for you? He represents you, right? He speaks for you. He pleads for you. He pleads your case for you. And if he's good, if he's faithful, the judge will hear him out, and he'll win your case. That's what we mean by advocate or representative, and that's what Moses was for Israel, and he was one of the best. When God spoke to Israel, he did so through Moses. When Israel needed something, 
when they were in distress, Moses prayed on behalf of them. He pleaded with God for them. And God listened to Moses on behalf of Israel. Israel. Why? Because he was a faithful representative. He was a faithful mediator. He represents and he advocates for his people. The second thing that we need to recognize, and this is certainly being, being you know, pulled into this text from Numbers 12, is that Moses had a unique relationship with God. Moses met with God unlike any other before. And Numbers 12 talks about this, which is what the author of Hebrews is pulling this in. So I'm going to read this for you, beginning in verse 5. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And God said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. See, no one, no one until Jesus would have this privilege. Moses faithfully obeyed God by confronting Pharaoh, probably one of the highlights of Moses' career. And then leading Israel through the sea, right? And then Moses had to endure the wilderness for 40 years. At some points, Israel even wanted to kill Moses. Talk about needing a halftime, you know, pep talk there, right? This guy, this guy went around in the desert for 40 years with these people. For that alone, he deserves something. And then, of course, there's the law. I mean, this guy went to the mountain, met with God, came down, radiated face, because he had been in the presence of God's glory, but had this direct written word from God. Historian, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, the tabernacle, so on and so forth. We're going to get a lot of this in the coming chapters of Hebrews because he loves Moses. But what's the point? Moses is a hero, and he's their hero. He's their hero. And as one commentator writes, it's difficult to overestimate what people thought of Moses in this day. He not only did amazing things, but he truly supplied his people, whether they wanted it or not, whether they grabbed hold of it or not, with God's wonderful presence and power. See, this would be encouraging to his audience. This would be a source of confidence for them because that's what heroes do. They instill confidence. And they do so in the midst of difficulty. But how do they do this? And how is this working into... um, uh, the text this morning. What would you give for somebody one day? What would you give for someone today who could part the seas and deliver you from fill in the blank? Who could actually give you freedom from addiction, from some besetting sin? What would you give if somebody had that ability? What would you give for somebody who could actually bring victory over your enemies just by raising his hands? Right? There's this real wonderful story about Moses as Israel is fighting um, Amalek there in Exodus 17. And Moses' hands, whenever they were raised, Israel was able to defeat Amalek and his people. But he got tired, so he had people hold up his hands for him. And as long as his hands were held up, Israel won. Right, I can think of a few places I'd like to take Moses with me to go do that. 
Maybe you have a boss or somebody. I don't know. But think about the power and the presence of God that that would represent to you because of Moses. This is what, this is, this is what they're thinking. Right, what would you give for somebody who has been so close to God that his face radiated like Moses's when he came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets? And see, that's what I want. I want, I want to see that. I need to be in the presence of that today. I need to see how God is real. What would you give for that? What would you give for someone who exhibits righteous anger perfectly, but also embodies grace and mercy? Right? When Moses returned from, the Mount, from Mount Sinai with the tablets, right, he comes down, and what is Israel doing? They're worshiping this golden calf. <sighs> right? And, and there's some beautiful righteous anger there, but what does he do? He goes back up to the mountain after breaking the tablets to make atonement for his people. Listen to this. Exodus 32, after worshiping the calf, he says, he goes up to the mountain to make atonement for them. He says, alas, this people, and God says, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They had made for themselves gods of gold. Sorry, this is Moses saying this. But now, if you will forgive their sin, he pleads, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is Moses to God on behalf of his people. Blot me out of your book. Take me down. Not them. What would you give for somebody who could lay down their life for you? That's Moses. See, heroes encourage us because they give us hope and confidence, confidence in the midst of life's circumstances. If Batman would just show up, that would be great. He's done it before. And there's a sense here that as the writer is alluding to, to, to Moses, that, 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 that the audience itself is wanting to slide back into this sort of old way of thinking, if you want to call it that. We would call it this, this old covenant. Right. I want to be under this mediator because I've seen it before. It's happened. There's witnesses. It's hard to embrace this new covenant, this Jesus. No one brought more confidence and hope to his people than Moses but here's the deal. Is this the author's point to just get his readers to remember the good old days? Is this the author's point to sort of show one of, one of the Bible's greatest heroes and just think, man, wasn't that a good time for us? Isn't that, wasn't that good? You remember that? No, it, it can't be. So why does he do it? Well, what Moses does for us and for those reading like any hero, it helps us see Jesus. That's why he does it. See, we see this in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Boy, there's a ton there. But what he's saying is that Moses, what Moses gives us isn't just a sign in the sky, if you will, that help is on the way. Moses himself is a silhouette of a better hero. One who can truly, who we can truly have confidence in. And it's here that the author wants his audience to consider Jesus at this point. If what Moses did was servant work, right? If what Moses did was just getting God's house ready, then what are we to make of Jesus? The one who this house is for, right? The architect of the house, the designer of the house, the sustainer of all those in the house. What are we to make of him? Wouldn't that be a better hero? Something that you could have confidence in 
And see, it would. And this gets to the third and final point, the source of true confidence. What the author of Hebrews is doing is getting us to consider our heroes because what our heroes do is help us see Jesus better. Because that is the only source of confidence that you have in this life. And that is Jesus. True confidence is always found in who our heroes point to. And Moses' entire life was just that. Something that pointed to Jesus. And how did Moses' life do that? How did it point to a better hero for, the, for, for us? And there's so much to say here. But for the, for the listener in this text, Moses delivered Israel from slavery. We all know that. But Jesus delivered us from ultimate slavery, didn't he? The ultimate slavery of sin, and he delivered us from that to the arms of the Father. Do you see that now? Moses brought victory over Amalek by raising his arms, but Jesus brings victory over our enemies by having his arms raised and nailed on a cross. Do you see that? Moses' face glowed from being in the presence of God, but Jesus was transfigured on that mountain because he is God. Do you see that? Moses offered himself to be blotted out of the book of life for the sake of his people, but Jesus was blotted out for the sake of his people. Why? Because Jesus, as a son, is more faithful. In other words, Moses could have died, but it wouldn't have done anything for you or me. We needed somebody better. And that's what Moses' life pointed to. We needed somebody who could actually do the job right. It's as if the writer is saying to his audience, you like these things over here? You, you like this person Moses and everything that he did? You want to you surround your life with who he is? Consider Jesus. Hold fast to him. And see, the encouragement to hold on here is subtle, isn't it? It's not in some dynamic, entertaining, charismatic display of words. It's not in a shout, and it's not in some sort of use of force or coercion. The encouragement to hold on to his people is the soft, gentle reminder of what this is all about in the first place. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. A better hero Jesus, the only one capable of bringing rest to restless hearts. And this is the source of true confidence for the audience that he's writing to and for you this morning. All right? So those are the three things. We've seen the need for confidence. We've seen the silhouette of true confidence in Moses, and we've seen the source of true confidence, how that silhouette, how that hero points us to a better hero. Well, what do we do with this? How do we hold fast? <laughs> right, we've been saying that a lot lately. And I want to offer just a point of application for this before we leave here. Look, if, if Jesus and his death and his resurrection are your confession, how do you hold fast to it? What does that look like? What does that look like? Might I suggest that one of the ways that we hold fast today, and, and the ancients got this better than we do, certainly the Psalms, because we're going to read Psalm 46, but one of the ways we hold fast today, if, Jesus, if this is all about Jesus, is 
to be able in the midst of difficult circumstances to be still and to know that he is God. Sounds kind of ironic, doesn't it? How do I hold fast? Be still and know that he is God. How do I do that? How do I hold fast and be still? Ryan, do you have any idea what's happened to me this week? Do you have any idea what's going on in my life right now? Right? We talk often about the mascot of the human culture today being a duck, right? And what, what, what's the picture of a duck on a pond? Like up above the water, calm and cool. We got it. We got this. But what's underneath? Just frantic. Frantic. Moving, 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 moving. Right? That's our lives. That is our lives. And you're telling me I'm supposed to be still in the midst of this? How is that even possible? One of the ways I want to suggest this is possible is to remember what we get when we connect ourselves to this house, to the church, that Christ is over. And what we get are a cloud of witnesses. We get a cloud of witnesses. Let me try to explain this with the time remaining. What the Christians that the author is writing to in Hebrews needed most was the confidence of looking at how the death and the resurrection of Jesus changed those who went before him. Right? The, the confidence of knowing that, that they are not alone. That there were many that went before them who believed in this confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And they took it to their death. That there were many of those who believed that, who were able to testify that this Jesus, this isn't a joke. You can trust us, I saw it. And he's trying to get them to remember those people, those witnesses who went before them. And see, the reality is, is that you and I have those same witnesses by being connected to the church. I'm going to cheat a little bit and jump ahead to chapter 12 because it's one of my favorite verses of all time. What is, the writer's already preparing us for this, but we're going to go there anyways. Just listen. Chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's do what? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. See, we have witnesses and the church connects you to those who have gone before you and those who will come after you. But do you know what witnesses give you? And this is really the point that I'm driving at that I want to leave you with. Do you know what witnesses give you? Witnesses give you rest because they testify to what is true. They give you the ability in the midst of the difficulty of life to be still and to know that Jesus is God. Some of you know that a couple weeks ago, we're all, we're, I'm okay, kids are okay, but my, my car got hit, got an accident, and I've been going through the wonderful thrills of dealing with insurance companies. And, um, and so uh, what happens when you're in an accident, right? And this was just, this guy just backed over me. It was it was the worst, well, it was not a worst accident. It was just, it was pathetic. We'll just put it that way. Uh, everyone's okay. But when you get in an accident, right, I mean, like emotions are high. You're trying to remember what to do. I get, is everybody okay? Get my insurance. Um, is he going to believe that this is his fault? Are we going to start getting sideways with each other? You know, what's, what's going to happen? I got to take pictures now. We got these phones. We can take pictures. Okay, I got to do that. Uh, I got to need to get his information. Did he give me his information? How do I know this is the right number? It's just on and on and on, and, and, and you're just, you know, frantic. 
describes the scene. This was me two weeks ago. Moments after the person who hit me drove away, in a good way, he'd give me his information and all that. I'm still left wondering if I've done everything right. I'm still left wondering, you know, is this going to work out? What's going to happen? And in, in the midst of that, this manager of the restaurant out in front where we got hit walks out, and he comes up to me and says, hey, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry about this, but I want you to know, look, I saw everything. Here's my card. Here's my number. Look, you, if you need the insurance company to call me, have them call me. Like, I will, I will totally witness everything for you. <laughs> Do you know what happened to me <laughs> when I heard that? I went from frantic to being able to rest. In other words, I was able to have confidence in the midst of a difficult situation. I was able to be still. This is what the church does for us. It's one of the components of the church I think is so left behind that the great cloud of witnesses does for us. There is this unique confidence that occurs when the church, as that manager did for me that, that, that afternoon, that when the church comes to you in life's most difficult circumstances and tells you, hey, relax, I saw all this. It's true. It's true. You can believe this. Now be still and know that I am God. That's what witnesses do for us because they testify to what is true. And what the author is trying to get us to see is that you belong to the greatest cloud of witnesses that could ever exist, those who testify to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your only source of true confidence in this world. That's what holding fast looks like for us this morning, right? It looks like having true rest because your confession is airtight. I saw it. I saw it. It looks like being still in the presence of trouble because your confidence is not found within, it's found in Jesus, the better hero, the perfecter of our faith. And so my question is, do you have that this morning? Does that define you as a believer? Does that define you as somebody who thinks Christianity is a joke? Does your confession, whatever it is that you use to navigate life, does that give you the type of encouragement and confidence to be still? And what would it look like for you to either consider or reconsider Jesus this morning? That's what the author is bringing to us. Look, just this week, And this was not an ordinary week, if I can get through this. But here are just some of the things I jotted down on Saturday of, of some of the things that I ha just, just happened to me, I heard about and, and talked with people about. One, my grandfather-in-law, 92. As some of you all know, he's battling cancer. He's in the later stages of this. 92, though. He fell and he injured, injured himself. It's just it's part of life. It's part of the later stages of life. And this is what that looks like for him. And, 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 the, and the difficulties that that brought him and certainly his family. And, and so that was one thing, right? I had a close, dear friend who lost their brother uh, to suicide this week. And Ada's actually gone because of that to be at the funeral. I've talked with and heard from over four or five individuals who have either lost work, looking for a job, 
right? And on top of all that, on Valentine's Day, don't forget Valentine's Day, I got in a fight with my wife. So romantic. So isn't life perfect? That's just this week. That's just me. Right? Y'all have a million more, right? What I want to say to them and what I want to say to myself is you can be still. You can be still because you have a greater hero. I need the basics this morning. Come on. I need, <clears throat> I need a better hero than Moses. I need Jesus. And so my prayer for you and for me is what our hearts, right? Would we be given that confidence to be able to be still in the midst of whatever shows up tomorrow, Right? Because that is a confidence that we can hold fast to and find rest in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth, how it is real, how it impacts us, how it meets us where we are. Would you go with us? Would you help us? Would you give us the strength and the ability to be still and to know that you are God? Would you give us the confidence in that way to hold fast to this wonderful, beautiful confession, the salvation that you have given us? Be with us in this time. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.